million dollar homes purchased with five-figure incomes. $16,000 a year, it's kind of ridiculous. The secret study into Vancouver's luxury housing market and why details are only coming out now. Warning from the front lines. This is principally a disease right now in the unvaccinated, but that is going to change. How hospitals are being pushed to their limits and what new modeling data tells us. And bad behavior by COVID rule breakers. Fear BC's new vaccine card will only make things worse. I'm very happy about the passport thing, but you got to do something to protect the businesses. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. A newly released secret investigation is casting a harsh new light on real estate sales in Metro Vancouver, one of the most unaffordable regions in the world. Kamel Karamali has the story of luxury home sales to overseas millionaires that drove up prices going hand in hand with suspected tax fraud. It was a revelation five years in the making. I'd put in a request in August 2016 and have to wait until 2021 to get the answer back. A request looking into a Canada Revenue Agency study from the mid-90s linking multi-million dollar home purchases to rich migrants who did not accurately disclose their overseas income resulting in tax cheating. But when the long-awaited results finally fell into the hands of South China Morning Post reporter Ian Young, the numbers blew him away. I was shocked by some of the numbers. The study now released by the Canada Revenue Agency showed that rich migrants made more than 90% of all luxury home purchases in two municipalities, Coquitlam and Burnaby, while declaring minimal to almost no income. The report shows that of the people who bought homes in Burnaby worth more than $800,000, the vast majority were recent immigrants. The average annual global income they declared was just over $16,000. At the time, long-term Canadians who were buying luxury homes of the same value were declaring incomes 16 times higher. One of the biggest shocking things to me was that the average incomes being declared by these millionaire migrants who were buying these multi-million dollar homes was on the level of refugees. In one example, the most expensive home in Burnaby went for over $2.8 million, but the global income declared for the buyer a mere $174. In another example, one Burnaby home sold was bought by a new immigrant for nearly $1.2 million, yet when it came to declaring their global income, they tallied less than nothing negative $4,000. BC stands for bring cash. Not surprising to some housing experts today who believe those purchases created the foundation for Vancouver's current housing crisis, something that could have been avoided. Yes, it certainly puts local Canadians at a disadvantage if you're here locally earning and paying high income tax rates. Years later, many say not much has changed for foreign home buyers who can still purchase a home without releasing accurate income figures. What money they're making in China uh, and sometimes that becomes impossible to trace. Leaving questions of if Vancouver is any better now than it was back then without a real solution to the problem. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Now, more secrecy in real estate revealed today about the terms of a deal that saw the Little Mountain Social Housing Complex torn down more than a decade ago. 
That agreement between developer Holborn and the then B.C. Liberal government included an 18-year interest-free loan of more than $200 million. But as Ted Trenecki reports tonight, that site remains largely empty. We may finally have a better idea of why this very large prime piece of real estate in the middle of Vancouver and its affordable housing crisis has remained empty for 13 years. Here it is. David Shudnovsky has been trying for three years to get the property owners to release its sales agreement with the province. Finally, Holborn Properties gave in, revealing that it paid $334 million back in April 2008. But BC gave Holborn a $211 million interest-free mortgage until the start of 2027. Moreover, the contract was devoid of deadlines. No deadlines for building, no requirements to build. This is a sweetheart deal. No wonder Holborn fought so hard to prevent it from being made public. Almost no building because 53 affordable housing units were completed in 2015 in exchange for another five years of that interest-free loan. The contract does state that 1,400 market condos can only be built after completing all 234 affordable housing units. No deadlines and a giant interest-free loan seems strange today, but in 2008, the real estate market was depressed. Linking the public units to the private units in terms of the timing of completion probably would have been enough many times, but in our particular economic environment, it wasn't. So how much should we blame Rich Coleman and whoever else signed the contract versus they wrote a decent contract and got unlucky? I think that's a bit of a judgment call. In 2009, about 700 longtime residents were evicted from the properties and told they could be back in new affordable housing just after the 2010 Olympics. Now, former residents are calling on the current government to renegotiate, take back the land, and build only affordable housing. We don't need any more of those. All we need is affordable housing. Okay, use linoleum instead of uh, expensive hardwood. You know what I mean? Ted Chernecki, Global News. Now, in a written statement, B.C. Liberal interim leader Shirley Bond says, while proceeds of the sale were used to develop more than 2,100 new supportive housing units across B.C., clearly the intended outcomes have not been met to date. Bond goes on to say, we need to understand how that lack of progress occurred. Now, turning to COVID-19 in our province, here is a look at the latest numbers. We have 655 new cases. That brings our active case number to just over 6,000. 187 people are in hospital, 103 of them in the ICU. Sadly, two more people have died from complications of the virus. And on the vaccination front, 76.5% of eligible British Columbians aged 12 and older are now fully vaccinated. Well, those vaccine numbers are the reason why this fourth wave of B.C.'s pandemic isn't worse. As Aaron MacArthur reports, the latest modeling data shows the province's immunization rate is blunting the impact of the Delta variant, while COVID runs wild among the unvaccinated. Cases going up. Hospitalizations going up. More deaths. B.C.'s fourth wave continues to be a concern, but according to the provincial health officer, this is now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. 
We see this very clearly in this cases per 100,000 and in the hospitalizations. And for people who are fully vaccinated, so having two doses of vaccine, that level has been low and steady and hospitalizations have been low. Of all the cases in B.C. reported since the end of July, 70% are in unvaccinated people. The unvaccinated make up 81% of all hospitalizations. While there are more deaths in vaccinated people, it's the older population that continues to be at greatest risk no matter their vaccination status. It really starts and is being driven with rapid increase in those who are most connected in our community. So young people between the ages of 19 and 39 are driving uh, the rise and increase in cases. And we know in that age group, they were the last of our age groups to be able to uh, access immunization. And we know that they're very highly connected in that age group. While cases are going up everywhere, a regional breakdown shows the pandemic is not affecting everywhere evenly. The Interior Health Region makes up just a small percentage of the population, yet a bulk of the cases over the last two months. Interior Health and Northern Health areas of BC have trailed in terms of overall vaccination by health authority. We've seen the largest increase of first-dose immunization in those two health authorities. Vaccinations have picked up steam since the announcement of the vaccine card, but there is more work to do. Bottom line, across all age groups, the primary risk factor continues to be people's immunization status. People are 12 times more likely to catch COVID if they're unvaccinated, 34 times more likely to be hospitalized, and 8 times more likely to die. This tells us that vaccines are working, that they're preventing thousands of cases and hospitalizations from occurring because they are protecting people across the age spectrum. Expect cases to rise, but also expect more regional measures designed to curb spread. In the meantime, wearing masks indoors and limiting social contact will be a consistent message well into the fall. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on the modeling data released today. Keith, health officials don't like to make predictions, but Mm -hmm. what is the projection going forward or what's the potential going forward? Yeah, Dr. Henry today in her presentation pointed out no more long-term projections that we've seen previously. Now they're sticking to one-month projections. So tucked at the back of this very lengthy and informative uh, presentation, two charts showing what can happen with various levels of transmission. First of all, the low transmission scenario for the months of September is quite interesting. So again, hospitalizations on the left, case numbers on the right. The purple line represents the, the increase expected if we're uh, 85% vaccination first dose. Green line is if we're at 90%. So things start to decline once we get to 90%, but a gentle increase in both hospitalizations and infections through the months of September as we're at 85%. Now, on moderate transmission, which is slightly more uh, of the R number, more than one, uh, again, you see a similar trajectory here with with 85% represented by the purple line, uh, 90% by the green line for both hospitalizations and infection numbers through the months of September. Obviously, more cases are going to develop with a moderate transmission scenario uh, through that month with, again, 
uh, 85% vaccination. Now, the reality is, Sophie, we're likely between the two lines. We're going to be over 85% probably as of Labor Day, but we're not going to get to 90% probably until at least October. So the month of September, likely a, a steady increase in the number of hospitalizations, but not a huge one, and a steady increase in the number of cases every day. But again, we're not going to be seeing what we saw in April with more than 500 people uh, in hospital on any given day. We could get there, though, if, again, there's explosions in clusters around the province in unvaccinated population. But right now, September looks to be uh, a gentle increase in hospitalizations and case numbers as our vaccination numbers now will exceed 85% and start to approach that desired 90% level. All right. Thanks, Keith. Let's hope it stays that way. With hospitalizations on the rise, a Nanaimo critical care doctor is warning a surge in COVID cases could push his ICU unit and others across B.C. to the breaking point. As Kylie Stanton reports, his advice to everybody is simple. Get vaccinated. Of the 6,045 COVID-19 cases currently active in B.C., five of them are here at the Nanaimo Regional General Hospital now battling the virus in the ICU. The real problem with this is that even though it does not necessarily occupy all of our beds, it certainly has an impact on access to critical care for non-COVID patients. Dr. David Forrest says it's a microcosm of what's happening right across the province. Cases on the rise, largely among the unvaccinated, pushing critical care to the brink. According to the Ministry of Health, between August 16th and 29th, more than 80% of cases were among those not fully vaccinated. And that population accounted for nearly 89% of hospitalizations. But Forrest warns that's about to change. My prediction is within the next few weeks, we are going to see more cases requiring hospital admission amongst those that are unvaccinated principally, but also amongst those that are vaccinated and an increased need for critical care resources to manage them. And after more than 18 months, the timing couldn't be worse. We have a very thin healthcare system right now, particularly in critical care. Physicians are tired, nurses are tired. Our health system has been working on this for a long time and it is stretched. But while the daily case numbers are similar to what BC saw back at the crest of the third wave, when vaccination rates were low, there is nowhere near the same kind of severe illness in terms of hospitalizations, ICU cases and and deaths. The health minister reiterating it's proof vaccines are working. So the message everywhere is that the more we raise vaccination levels, the better it is. In the meantime, the mask mandate has been reintroduced as the province prepares its proof of vaccination program. And while there will no doubt be breakthrough cases where vaccinated people become ill, that becomes less and less likely with every shot. That the only way we are going to get out of this mess is if everyone gets vaccinated. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Well, the owner of a Mission restaurant says he's the victim of vicious online abuse from anti-vaxxers after his post about BC's vaccination passport. As Amadagahi reports, he's wondering what the government is going to do to protect him while he obeys the law. It has been open almost two years now. But for this barbecue restaurant in Mission, keeping the fire going has not been easy. We just opened, and then three months later on, we were closed down for the COVID pandemic. They closed when they were asked to. 
They've upgraded ventilation and spaced out their seats. So when they were asked by a customer online if they would be following BC's proposed vaccine card program, the answer was obvious. I replied, we're going to do whatever the law tells us we need to do. And it was like hitting a bee's nest. They come out of the woodwork. The messages started last Friday. Facebook users calling the vaccine passport criminal and a human rights violation. One person writing to the restaurant, they will never support the business due to a lack of proper education and a desire to promote unconstitutional behavior. And others saying that they should be ashamed to show their face after discriminating against good, healthy Canadians. It has taken a mental toll on staff who are getting grilled multiple times on the phone as well with the same message every day. I'm very happy about the passport thing, but you got to do something to protect the businesses. The province has told businesses to call police if the vaccine card creates issues in person. But what can they do to stop online harassment? If you are emotionally invested in your business and all of a sudden you've got people bombarding you and your phone's exploding, Obviously, it's exhausting. One of the best things to do is just highlight them all, delete them, and move forward with a positive social media presence that shows you're doing the things that majority of consumers want to see. If you're not vaccinated, then you don't come in here. You can't come into my house if you're not vaccinated. You can't. I came in here to support them because I think think that we've all got to get on board with this or we're never going to get out of it. They've deleted as many messages as they could, hoping those choosing to take their frustrations out on a business that's just following the rules will burn themselves out. Emma Gahi, Global News. Port Alberni RCMP are trying to identify a suspect caught on camera urinating on the floor of a local Dairy Queen after he was apparently refused service for refusing to wear a mask. This was the scene on Saturday just before 9 in the evening. Police say the incident took place when staff got into a heated discussion with the suspect and he was asked to leave. The suspect then became verbally aggressive and abusive, left the restaurant but came back a short time later and then urinated on the counter as staff and customers looked on. RCMP are now releasing this photo in an effort to track down the person responsible. Workers at the fast food store say the encounter was pretty frightening. Well, at that time, I kind of just froze. I never experienced anything like that before. So I was, I was kind of just <laughs> shocked. We'd have the odd person that would throw a big argument about having to wear a mask, but... They would just leave and grab a mask and come back and we would serve them. And I've never really had any other encounters like this. She says the person returned the next day and threatened her co-workers. Many people in the fast food industry are also worried about more angry outbursts when vaccine cards come into effect. She hopes this incident will shine a light on what a lot of younger, low-wage employees are dealing with during this pandemic. BC Restaurant Association is now considering asking the province for some form of subsidy to allow fast food establishments to hire security ahead of the vaccine card implementation. The restaurants don't have the money to buy a security guard, but I think, you know, considering the cost of not doing this properly uh, is way greater than the cost of installing 
some security people in restaurants throughout BC that are, are a bit vulnerable to this kind of stuff. Well, the Stanley Park closure is being extended after more coyote attacks. Three more biting incidents over the past few days have prompted the park board to shut things down at 7 p.m. And they're again asking you not to feed the animals. But that's not stopping some people. How social media is helping perpetuate the problem in just over a minute. To know that he's still alive and he's out there is just killing us. A family's frantic search for their missing dog and why they can't get him back even though he has been found. That's later. Plus, spotting speeders, the new tool tracking drivers that you won't even notice until it's too late. Right now, though, Stanley Park will now be shutting down a lot earlier in the evening in an effort to prevent further animal attacks in the area, with three more people reporting coyote encounters over a 72-hour period. Grace Key tells us the Vancouver Park Board is also putting part of the blame on people feeding the animals. 6.30 Friday morning, a coyote bit a jogger near Lost Lagoon. He was able to shake it off, suffering a puncture wound. Just after 9 p.m., a coyote bit a man along the seawall near the Lionsgate Bridge. 5.30 Monday morning, a coyote bit a man near Second Beach. The park board is now taking a new measure. As of tonight, we're closing the park at 7 p.m. We have had extra rangers on. We're really saying to people, give us uh, more time. Um, this is a complex issue. We're taking it very seriously. Since December 2020, there have been more than 40 coyote attacks at Stanley Park, and conservation officers have killed six coyotes. The animals are killed if they match the profile of the attacking animal, and there were no specific descriptions in the recent attacks. If people choose to recreate in the park, uh, obviously go in pairs, don't go during dawn and dusk hours. You know, if they're going to go for a run, not wearing earbuds, making a lot of loud noise and, and just being aware of their surroundings. Conservation officers have spent hundreds of hours patrolling the park. The frontline agency responds to predator attacks. The province is responsible for wildlife management. The Ministry of Forests says work is being done to address human behavior and food availability to reset the park environment. The goal to sustain long-term coexistence with coyotes. There are some folks going in uh, with raw chicken, with uh, cat food, with bird seed, and intentionally feeding either the raccoons or the uh, coyotes in order to get pictures. Officers are investigating reports of people intentionally feeding animals. Public education continues, and wildlife-resistant garbage containers are being installed. The closure is from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. If you're heading to restaurants or the aquarium, you're being asked to take the most direct route and park as close as possible. Grace Key, Global News. Just ahead, the provincial health emergency that's only getting worse. Why, when we are characterized as a socially conscious province and country, would we allow this dismal and tragic situation to, to exist? The illicit drug crisis putting BC on pace for another year of record deaths. Plus, a Vancouver surgeon says he's sorry. What happened in this video that's prompting an apology? Delays here in Burnaby due to a stalled truck. It is southbound on Boundary near 22nd Avenue. Traffic is merging from three lanes into just two. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $15 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a stalled truck in Burnaby. 
B.C. is marking International Overdose Awareness Day with some very grim numbers. The highest death toll ever recorded for the first half of the year. As Catherine Urquhart reports, experts are demanding the removal of barriers to a safer drug supply and are calling for more options for those looking to overcome their addiction. On the streets of Vancouver, and even more often in private, illicit drug use in B.C. continues to leave a devastating path of destruction. Drug toxicity is now the leading cause of death for people aged 19 to 39. And on this International Overdose Awareness Day, BC's chief coroner made an ominous prediction. If this rate of death continues, BC will experience yet another record-breaking year for illicit drug fatalities. In the first half of 2021, more than 1,000 people died from an overdose, a 34% increase compared to the same time last year. 159 deaths occurred in June. 80% of those who died were men, with 71% of OD victims between ages 30 and 59. BC's paramedics deal with the aftermath every day and say the numbers are staggering. We used to respond before the crisis arrived, between 10 to 12,000 overdoses a year, and now we do that in less than six months. While paramedics are fighting to save lives, others are educating about opioids. The group SUDA, or Students Overcoming Substance Disorder and Addictions, held an event at Surrey's Guru Nanak Gurdwara. Especially within South Asian community, there's lots of stigma and taboo related to substance use and opioid addiction. Outside Health Minister Adrian Dix's constituency office, protesters demanded a safe supply program. My 21-year-old daughter and many other children and young ones, young adults, uh, have given their lives and died from a toxic drug supply that still exists today. Nearly 85% of deaths occurred indoors, 56% in private residences. Not one was reported at a supervised drug use or drug prevention site. BC's chief coroner says the numbers all point to the need for change. I think we need a shift, just just a significant shift in how we, our politicians, our local governments, look at those who use substances and recognize them as people worthy of medical support. And if that shift doesn't happen, the carnage from illicit opioids will surely continue, possibly at a record pace. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A surgeon and Vancouver Coastal Health are both apologizing for the doctor's actions and the response to racist comments posted on social media. Dr. Jason Falds caught on video telling a South Asian man to crawl back to Surrey during a traffic dispute. The Post claimed Fald was impaired and he later pleaded guilty to driving without due care and attention after initially being charged with impaired driving. Falds has issued a statement saying he is ashamed of his behavior and apologizes to the Vancouver Coastal Health community, the residents of Surrey and the entire South Asian community. Vancouver Coastal is also apologizing, admitting it didn't do enough when it was told of the incident and saying its initial response was inadequate. But the statement doesn't say what, if anything, it has done. Up next, hitting some bumps along the campaign trail.
the angry protests along the way, and what the leaders are promising today. Also ahead, the new study suggesting not all mRNA vaccines are created equal. Good evening. Traffic is steady now in both directions at the Alex Fraser Bridge, which is a little bit of leftover volume eastbound on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-Curve. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Potential street racers in Delta are being monitored through a new lens as a way to crack down on the problem near Tawasson. Police are now using drones to enforce the issue near Tawasson First Nation lands and in the area of Highway 17. Not only does the drone allow for excellent visibility over a wide area, it can also zoom in on individual license plates. That allows officers to strategically pull the speeders over when it's safe to do so. Just last week, police impounded one vehicle traveling at 157 kilometers per hour in an 80 zone. We've uh, used a drone to uh, look at other vehicles for mechanical defects. Um, you know, again, having that wide visibility on cars that are out on the road. So uh, our, our traffic section is more than excited to use this uh, in the future um, again. So I do think that it'll be Become, uh, part of our main practices, especially in uh, those areas where cars are driving fast. On the federal campaign trail, the party leaders are in Ottawa and on the West Coast with promises of big bucks for mental health services, a balanced budget with zero cuts, and a crackdown on house flippers cashing in on the real estate market. Global's Miranda Anthistle has the details. In the nation's capital, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau is talking support for mental health, pledging to invest close to $6.5 billion over five years through a dedicated federal transfer. This funding and this new transfer will mean everything from shorter wait times to more mental health professionals on the job. We'll also invest in 1,200 new mental health care counsellors at colleges and universities. This is one of several investments in the billions promised by the Liberals. Trudeau was questioned whether this spending on top of the existing deficits is sustainable. We're actually bouncing back stronger as our economy comes roaring back because we were there for small businesses. We were there for families. Under Justin Trudeau, we are heading further down the road of recession, not the road to recovery. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole castigating Trudeau, accusing him of out-of-control spending that is racking up the federal debt. The Tory leader says his party has a recovery plan to balance the budget without making any cuts. Also promising to maintain essential services as the emergency pandemic support is phased out. As we wind down these programs, we will replace them with our job search which will provide an incentive for companies to hire. And we will make targeted investments in stimulus measures. Meanwhile, on the West Coast, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh released the next step in his party's plan to address the housing crisis. It includes cracking down on wealthy investors and big money house flippers by increasing the capital gains tax to 75%. Bringing it back to what it used to be not too long ago. The Liberals changed that and in doing that, 
really encouraged property flipping and made it so that more and more people were using the housing market like a stock market. We want to stop that. Going on to say the NDP is not targeting those with a cottage or farm, but rather people making money off of homes they aren't living in. Miranda Anthesel, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, a new study of the two mRNA COVID vaccines suggests the Moderna shots may generate a stronger immune response to the virus than the Pfizer vaccine. The Belgian study of nearly 2,500 hospital workers found those who received two doses of Moderna had double the antibodies compared to those with two of Pfizer. Researchers say the difference may be explained by a higher amount of the active ingredient in the Moderna shot and longer intervals between the two doses. A previous study by the Mayo Clinic also linked Moderna with a lower risk of breakthrough infections compared to Pfizer. Still to come, a BC teenager getting ready for a very different back-to-school experience. Huge, man. This could like literally set off my career as a drummer. How he's managed to snare himself a big opportunity. Plus, a family's missing dog is found safe and sound, but they can't have him back. Their heartbroken plea just ahead. All right, time to check our weather forecast. Let's bring in meteorologist Yvonne Shell. I just realized, Yvonne, I have no idea what the weather was like today. <laughs> I don't think I looked out the window once. Oh, well, Soph, it was a bit of a mixed bag. We actually had a few lightning strikes pop up in the Tri-Cities region. We had a few isolated showers in the morning and then drier towards the afternoon. Right now, though, we are seeing some breaks out there. There is going to be more cloud cover, and it is cooling off as we get in towards the evening hours. We still have a few isolated showers, especially near the Thompson Okanagan. Uh, a few areas near Prince George could see an isolated shower. And then in behind it, this is what we're anticipating. We've got some breaks of ridge of high pressure is going to build in and we'll see some sunshine. Temperatures are going to warm up overnight tonight. Be prepared. We'll be down to 10 degrees. We'll have the cloud for the morning hours clearing towards the afternoon and highs should get closer to 20 degrees. Once we get past the cloud cover leading in towards the afternoon, it's dry across Metro Vancouver. But the isolated showers, especially near the Columbia region through the afternoon and early evening, the northern half of the province, the rain holds off until Thursday. Tomorrow it'll be dry. Temperatures will be up to 17 degrees and inland into the low 20s. The one area for the northeastern corners near the Peace could see cooler conditions with a few showers and then dry across the central interior. Columbia, that's where we could see that cloud cover and a cooler one tomorrow. Golden just getting up to 16 degrees. Tops in Okanagan, though, will rebound with some sunshine tomorrow and into the low 20s along the south coast, northern tip of Vancouver Island. A bit unsettled for the morning hours, clearing towards the afternoon. Metro Vancouver, Cloud cover in the morning, dry by the afternoon. On Thursday, actually one of the nicest out of the bunch. Sunny highs between 22. Away from the water, 25. Still a few days out. Could be wet as we get in towards the weekend on Saturday. Tonight's central centro windows, weather window. The sunset that was captured last night in Tawasin by Kerry. So, so serene. Beautiful. Thank you, Yvonne. A new Brunswick family is desperate to get their dog back. The 13-year-old lab went missing in the spring, but Global's Shelley Steves explains why even though he's now been found, he may never come home. Can everybody please try and help to bring him home? When the Arbo family's 13-year-old yellow lab, Roscoe, went missing back in April from their home in New Brunswick, the family was frantic. We don't just go on without him. Like, there, there's no without Roscoe. 
They spent weeks combing 150 acres of woods around their rural home. I get on the four wheeler, the quad, and I'd go for I go for hours. Desperate to find Roscoe, the family posted to social media, hoping someone somewhere had spotted the dog who they've had since he was a puppy. And I love and miss my dog Roscoe. My youngest, she cries all the time for him. Nearly two months passed, and the family had pretty well given up hope. But at the end of June, Ashley was shocked to happen upon a picture of Roscoe up for adoption at the Moncton SPCA, more than two hours away. I said, I just found him, I found him. It never dawned on them to check a shelter so far away, so they immediately called only to get some crushing news. And now we're not allowed to have him back. Just five days earlier, Roscoe had been adopted out, and they were told that the new owners, despite the Arbo's plea to get him back, have decided to keep him. I just want him home, and all my kids are, like, they're just devastated. We reached out to the SPCA, which could not provide any details to us or the Arbo's about who now owns Roscoe due to privacy laws. Whoever adopted him probably, you know, wants to take care of him, which is a good thing. To know that he's still alive and he's out there is just killing us. The family has started up an online campaign using hashtag bring Roscoe home, hoping the new owners will see their story and have a change of heart, or at the very least, give them a chance to say goodbye. I've had so many people reach out and try to help and like put posts up and, and trying to reach out to the people who adopted him. Because right now, Ashley can't even bring himself to walk by the river where he took Roscoe to swim on hot days. Every day, there's always something that, you know, it's just, a constant reminder he's gone. Shelly Steves, Global News, Moncton. Okay, we're all sad now. Yeah, it's very sad. Roscoe. I hope that family will allow them to have him back. Or at least say goodbye. At least. Something. I mean, the story's national now, so <laughs> I'm sure they'll see Let's it somewhere. <laughs> all right, uh, Squire, bring us back up. Lift our spirits. Okay, I'll try my very best. Uh, Bowen Byram was one of the uh, fastest defensemen when he played in the Western Hockey League for Vancouver, but the NHL's speed limit is a little bit higher than junior hockey. It's like fast. I mean, um, everybody can fly, so uh, it's, it's tough and it's hard competitive hockey. As you can see, we're talking to Byram, who's getting ready for his second season with the Avalanche. And later, he's got the beat, the White Rock teenager about to follow in the footsteps of some big-name stars. We're, we're, we're sitting next to each other. Well, kind of. There's a big gap. There's quite a gulf between us. I'm just us. not used to it anymore. I know, I know. But you know what? You will get used to it. You're allowed back at the desk. This I know, it's milestone. so much fun. It's, I, I don't feel as exiled. <laughs> Yeah. One day. One, one day. day we'll be we'll even closer. One day we'll be able to reach out and touch each mm. other. But then again, maybe not. Uh, BC's Voshik Pospisil had a huge comeback win today in the first round of the U.S. Open. He fell behind two sets of love after less than an hour, but he beat number 28 Fabio Fognini in a fifth set tiebreak to get to the second round of the U.S. Open for the fourth straight year. So let's watch. The man from Vernon who lives in Vancouver. Sometimes. Uh, Pospisil, as we said, fell down 6-2-6-3 in the first two sets. Then, in the third set, he was much the best, winning 6-1. Beautiful. In the fourth set, Pospisil won it 6-3. And just to make this extra dramatic, the fifth set went to the tie break. 
and Pospisil got off to a fast start. And Fajnini suddenly had a real problem with his racket. Right here. No. It's not its fault. Pospisil for the win. Now that's a comeback. Down two love and wins it in a tie break. Canada and the U.S. gold medal final women's world championship. 19th time out of 20 world championships. This has been the final. Alex Carpenter gives the Americans a 2-0 lead after one period. Canada beat the Americans in the round robin portion 5-1. And they would come back in the second period. Brianne Jenner on the power play. Gets the puck, makes the move, 2-1. And then Jamie Lee Rattray will deflect Jocelyn the rock shot to tie it. That's a perfect deflection right through the legs. And they're in the third period, and it's still tied at 2-2. Bowen Byram was a defenseman the Vancouver Canucks would have loved to have drafted, but he was already gone by the time they picked 10th in the 2019 draft, which was held at Rogers Arena. And for Byram, being drafted in Vancouver was perfect. BC guy who played for the Giants. But now he's a full-fledged NHLer getting ready for a full season with the Colorado Avalanche. Bowen Byram is more than ready for his first full NHL season. The 20-year-old defenseman has packed on 10 pounds of muscle to an already sturdy 6'1 NHL frame. It's been a busy last 10 months for the Cranbrook native. He wore the C for Team Canada at the World Juniors and then weeks later made his NHL debut for the Colorado Avalanche, skating in 19 NHL games. Great pass back to Rotman who scores. What a pass. Was it what you expected? I think it was a bit different this year for everybody just because of COVID, obviously. Um, everything was a little weird, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, I really enjoyed it. A um, couple injuries that that sucked and kept me out of the lineup for a while, but um, it was a good year. I, mean, I, get, I gained a lot of experience and uh, learned a lot, so um, I'm excited to get back there this year. When he skated for the Vancouver Giants, Byram was a defenseman who could and did do it all. He logged heavy minutes playing in every situation, basically a coach's dream. It's what made him Colorado's first pick and the fourth overall selection in the 2019 draft. And his 19 games this past season with the Avs, more than a cup of coffee in the show. He averaged just over 17 and a half minutes a game, including a night where he had 32 shifts and over 25 minutes of ice time. I just tried to, to do my best, uh, use, use my strong suits to my advantage, and uh, yeah, uh, like I said, I'm just really excited to get back. Are you looking forward to playing in all the cities now as opposed to just the you know, crazy <laughs> schedule we saw? Yeah, it'll be nice to uh, definitely um, see some new rinks, some new cities and whatnot. Last year was a bit tough going to the same places all the time, but uh, yeah, it, it was still a lot of fun and, and a great experience. And a big surprise, quarterback Cam Newton was cut today by the New England Patriots. The feeling is the fact Newton is unvaccinated might have something to do with it. He wasn't all that great in the preseason, and he missed five days because he broke a COVID-19 protocol. And there are rules in the NFL this year that if there is an outbreak among unvaccinated players, a team may be forced to forfeit the game. So that means rookie Mac Jones will be the starting quarterback for the Patriots. He was drafted in the first round this year from Alabama, whose coach Nick Saban is very close friends with New England's head coach Bill Belichick. What surprised people is Belichick had kept saying Newton was his number one guy before making the change today. There you go. All right, thank you, Squire. You're Up next, the White Rock teen whose back-to-school supply list includes a drum kit and a ticket to Michigan. 
That's next. A teen drummer who's jammed with musicians three times his age is about to join a pretty exclusive club. In tonight's This Is BC, Jay Durant has more on the White Rock teen's big opportunity in Michigan. Jazz drummer Oliver Fenton has logged some incredibly long hours in his studio. So there are days where I would literally, my hands would bleed by the end of my performances. I've got blood all over my snare drum. His mom has had to prepare for many sessions that go well into the night. I'm making sure all the doors and windows are closed. <laughs> but all that practice has landed him a scholarship at the prestigious Interlochen Center for the Arts in Michigan, a school that has a lot of famous alumni. Musician Josh Groban studied there. Makes me feel like I took happy pills. And that's where singer Nora Jones got her start. Fenton will spend grade 12 at Interlochen after learning his skills at Samyamu Secondary in Surrey. His teacher there introduced him to a lot of different bands, like Metallica. Not exactly Oliver's genre, but he could hammer out something like this in a pinch. Enter the Sandman. That song's pretty, pretty rockin', to be honest. I like that one. His talent is well known at home in White Rock was invited to start playing live shows at a local restaurant, a 15-year-old jamming with some veteran musicians. To have that experience is incredible. You really learn so much so quickly about what it means to not only play music, but entertain the crowd, you know, because that's what music's all about. And now the school year will offer Phantom opportunities that very few get to experience. It's huge, man. This could like literally set off my career as a drummer. And, uh, I'm going to meet some cool people <clears throat> when I go to this school and, you know, these are the kind of friendships that last forever and I might form a band and stick together for the rest of our days. Jay Durant, Global News. Squire, our resident drum expert, says he's very good. Very, very. You don't get to go to those uh, places without being ex excellent. Yeah, no kidding. If you have a great story or something unique to BC to tell us about, email your ideas to thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Congratulations to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I as you can see, my desk time is over already. <laughs> yeah, we tried it. and hmm. Didn't work out? Yeah, we're moving on. Yeah, we're moving on. Okay. <laughs> and speaking of that, we're moving on from the show. <laughs> Thanks for joining us tonight. <laughs> see you tomorrow. You'll get back there.